The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Culture Club time. Delighted that Cathy Belton is with us. She is starring in a new version of Heinrich Ibsen's Ghosts, which is written and directed by Marco Rowe. It's going to be on, presented by the Abbey Theatre and Landmark Productions from about the middle of April. And I believe you've come from rehearsals, have you? I've just come out the door, Matt. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for joining us. Tell us about this new version of Ghosts. What can people expect from it? I think people will um, are in for a bit of a treat. Uh, it's it's one of the greatest plays ever written um, by Henrik Ibsen. And Marco Rowe has taken this amazing play and made it even better uh, and stripped it back to its core. Um, it's a thrilling moral uh, drama uh, about a family, a woman who thinks that she can relabel, plant, uh, hide away the past. And unfortunately, over just one day, this whole play happens. Um, her, her life is turned upside down and her son gives her devastating news that changes everything for them forever. But more than that, it's about the human condition. It's about living your truest self. It's, it's an extraordinary play. And I have to say, Mark has just, um, done something very, very special with this in terms of his music, his rhythm and the truth, the way Mark writes anyways. I mean, he's never afraid to push moral boundaries, push push theatrical boundaries. And with this, I, I was kind of blown away when I read it. Is it true that you pushed him to do this so that you'd get the part? <laughs> no, Mark has always loved ghosts and we work together on the approach and... Uh, I'd work with Mark in anything. I think he's one of our greatest living writers. And we started talking about it. And he said, what part have you always wanted to play? And I remember reading it in college and I said, I've always, when I grow up, wanted to play Mrs. Alvin. And he was always, he. it, it was kind of serendipitous because he wanted to tackle this play and no better man um, to do this. You've grown up now, have you? <laughs> I have, Matt, unfortunately. No more Norris for me. Well, let's go back to the Culture Club choices because we always ask every guest to nominate the first single that they can ever remember buying if they have a memory of it. And tell us about your selection. Uh, my first single was, I came from a house where it, the, my mum and dad, they played music all the time. Uh, dad would come in on a Friday evening and he'd have the bag, the Chivago's bag, He'd buy an album every Friday after work and he'd go, lads, listen to this sound. Like I remember when he brought Paul Simon's Graceland in and he went, wait and you hear this, Cathy and Arena, my my sister. Um, That's so, a lovely idea that he would go and buy a yeah. record for every weekend. Yeah, yeah. He like his collection of albums was extraordinary mass. And he I think he really he formed my taste in music and film. He was a mad movie buff as well. Um, so albums, records were always in the house. There was always dancing. There was always um, music and discussions. So were you actually asked to sing regularly as well? <laughs> always sing. Myself and my sister, Abba, of course, two girls. She was my younger sister. Abba was a huge, we'd do our Mamma Mia's routine with her hairbrushes. And then mum, it was so interesting, the dichotomy. Mum was a big country and western fan. So the, the battle between dad adored Elvis, Frank Sinatra, jazz, um, uh, classical music and the mum had her Glen Campbell, her Gale, Crystal Gale 
well. So great you, music as well. Great music, yeah. So I remember my first single was Boontown Rats. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Was that be you rebelling a little bit against I think their it choice was. of music? I think it was like, tell me why I don't like music. I think as well, to be honest, Matt, it was really cool. So I was desperately trying to be cool. I remember writing my name on the single. And I just Bob Geldof's rebellion, um, and just it was, it was, um, yeah, it was. It stopped me in my tracks. Let's hear a little bit of it. Belton's first choice, the Boom Traumats. I don't like Mondays. There's almost sort of a theatrical element to that song. There is, isn't there? Isn't there? There's real presentation in it and protest as well. Big yeah. performance. Okay, let's move to a favourite album. And we were just saying there <laughs> off air, you've picked something that quite a few people have picked. Joni Mitchell's Blue. Why is that? I don't know. From the first moment, I think I was about 15 when I heard a voice for the first time and it blew my world apart. That falsetto, that that... that that control and that freedom and blue, I think, has stayed with me since at various stages of my life, whether it be heartbreak, whether it be travel. I mean, you listen to something like California and you always want to go home. I remember listening to that a lot when I was interrailing. And then the first time I saw Richard, you know, what a what a song about settling for domestic life again, you know, and then you settle down and and then the great yearning of a case of you Um and I think the older I get, Matt, I feel I, I just I'm appreciating it more and more every time. And and it's ultimately, though, it's the voice, the voice of it's a div- I don't know where it comes from in that woman, but that divinity, there is something else. She speaks to me. She heals me and she's healed me over many heartbreaks over those teenage years. And I think she'd be with me forever. Well, you mentioned the yearning of a case of you. So let's hear a little bit of it. Just before our love got lost, you said I am as constant as a northern star And I said, constantly in the darkness Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the barn On the back of a cartoon coaster In a blue TV screen light Canada
Nice of you, Joni Mitchell, from the album Blue, which is from 1971. Do you go back to it regularly? All the time. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah, when I'm walking the dog and it's a rough day at work or something. Yeah, stick on Blue. You also, though, have honourable mention for an album you mentioned from your dad earlier, Paul Simon's Graceland. Yeah, yeah. I still remember the day he came in that Friday and he said, listen to this. I remember like... Uh, he he had the VHS recorder, the big clunk, and shown me Central Park, Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park. I think that was the first concert. I, you know, I was so young, and he said, "Watch this! This is amazing." And hearing Simon and Garfunkel again, the voice, the melodies. But when he came in with Paul Simon and said, "Look what this guy has done," and listening to Graceland for the first time it was kind of extraordinary. Because yeah. it was totally unusual at the time to bring in all of the African musicians and the medleys. Like he was so ahead of his time. It was just he kept reinventing himself in the most subtle way, but moving people's worlds. You've given us quite a list of favourite bands or artists. Tell us some of them. There's so many, Matt. Um, my first, and I'll save it to the end, but I, I think Kevin Doherty is an extraordinary um, singer that we have amongst us. He is our Irish Bob Dylan. Um, but um, after that, uh, you know, Ricky Lee Jones, I adore. I think that's coming from my Joni love as well. I, I think through work as well, I've got to know and fall in love with, you know, music associated with work. Elvis, um, that will always be dad to me. Uh, and I still listen to Elvis and go, that voice, again, the voice, you know, and the way they can tell us stories. But, at, you know, my my big love at the moment, it has been, and it got us through a lot of lockdown, was The Villagers. Again, Conor O'Brien, what a voice. It comes from another place. Uh, and the way even his cover versions are kind of extraordinary of the way he tells his own story. And you asked us actually to use one cover version. You mentioned yeah. Glenn Campbell earlier yeah. and one of his great songs. Wichita Lineman, I think one of the greatest love songs ever written. I need you more than love you and want you all. I need you more than want you and want you for all time. And I think it probably brings me back to my mom and her country and western um, albums. But I think Conor O'Brien's The Villagers version of that Wichita Wine Lab, um, Wichita Lime Man is just Let's hear a sublime. County, and I drive the main road, searching in the sun for another overload. I hear you singing in the wire, I can hear you through the wine and the Wichita line. Still on the line. I know I need a small vacation. There's just a little bit of Conor O'Brien villagers singing Wichita Lineman. I hadn't heard that before. There was a brilliant Glenn Campbell documentary on BBC during lockdown. And that was one of the main songs featured in a remarkable story of Glenn Campbell's life. But it's an incredible voice that villagers Conor O'Brien has, oh, isn't amazing, it? Amazing, amazing. It heals. 
It heals. He can heal people with a voice like that. I think great music can heal. OK, talk to me about gigs. You have given me a list of great <laughs> gigs. And I want to try to, first of all, let's start with, and this is a great one because the ultimate event, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Lisa Minnelli in Lansdowne Road, 1991. This is them. This is not actors playing them. I know, I know. It was Hollywood came to town. I, I don't know if you were at that no, gig. No, I'll never forget as long as I live. It was the night before my finals and, uh, and, Dad uh, had got his tickets, been a big Frank Sinatra fan. And he said, we're going to the ultimate event. And I still remember walking in there, sitting down Lansdowne Road, road sitting and Liza Minnelli comes on stage, Sammy Davis Jr. And it, actually, you felt like you were dreaming. It felt like, you know, it was Hollywood. It was spectacular. They were at their peak and it was Frank Sinatra's voice was still Absolute. It was at its best. And he had the crowd in the palm of the hand, you know, and you could hear people going, we love you, Frank. And just the three of them together, they they transcended together and brought us all with them. There was such communal transcendence that uh, that night. It was the best thing to do before any exam. Well, we don't have from Lansdowne Road that night, but what we do have is when Sammy Davis Jr. introduces Lisa Minnelli as they open for Frank Sinatra in the Ultimate Event concert in Detroit in One singular sensation and you can't forget the rest For that girl is second best to none Why she's fun I said, ooh, my, I give her your attention Do you, I, I really have to mention She's the Ladies and gentlemen, she's simply the best Liza! Come on, baby, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz, I'm gonna bruise my knees and roll my stockings down. And all that jazz, stop the car, I know a be spot where the gin is cold but the piano's hot. It's just a noisy hall where there's a nightly brawl and all a bad so we heard Liza Minnelli, Sammy Davis Jr. No, Frank Sinatra, but you were clearly enjoying that cast. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. A timing, you know, and the tongue firmly in cheek of Sammy Davis bringing her on. And oh, glorious. You mentioned Ricky Lee Jones earlier. Oh, you yeah. saw her at the Olympia. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I think it was around, I'm trying to remember the year, um, 1980, 1990, 1995. And I had done a play called True Lines that uh, John Crowley had directed the year before, about four people in different parts of the world. And that would, the we all, I 
um, picked in middle America. We devised the play. It was four Irish people at different parts of the world. And I was in the middle of America trying to get from the Grand Canyon all the way across. And it was, uh, you know, we devised it. So I had this story. And my theme tune was Last Chance Texaco, Ricky D. Jones. So it was John Crowley who introduced me to Ricky D. Jones. And once I heard her, I couldn't get enough of her. I, that, that voice, um, that life. And she, yeah, she, she's, she reminded me of Joni, but there's there's just something else. There's there's a theatricality and, and that song, the way she gives the sound of the the car at the end. And and uh, yeah, I, I loved her. That gig was extraordinary. Well, one other gig we have to give mention to. And if Joni Mitchell's Blue has come up many times on the Culture Club over the last four or five years, definitely the concert which has been mentioned by more people than anyone else is Leonard Cohen in Kilmainham. Yeah. What was it about it for you? I think it was a baptism for me. I was never a huge Leonard Cohen fan, to my shame. Um, I certainly am now. And my aunt, uh, I was uh, living near Kamenum, and my aunt uh, brought me. She had two tickets. Uh, She came up from Galway, Auntie Nett. And uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, He was just, he was starting, it was that first gig when he was about to tour again. He couldn't believe uh, the reaction and it was like a baptism of fire. He was so present and so grateful. And it was a storyteller in complete command of his stories, his voice. And again, that's that communal transcendence. I remember at one stage the heavens opened and we got hammered with rain. And it, it didn't matter. It, it didn't matter. It added to the it experience. It added to the experience. Take us now, Leonard. It was extraordinary. I need to take a break. Kathy Belton, who, of course, will be starring in the, the Abbey in Heinrich Ibsen's Ghosts from the 19th of April, is with us. And we're going to hear her rest of her choices, uh, particularly movies and plays and books, in the second part of the Culture Club after we come back from the traffic with Mark Hogan. Kathy Belton is with us for more Culture Club. And we're going to go to movies because, as you mentioned, your father used to love watching movies and had you watching movies. Movies. So what are you going to pick out for us as amongst your favourites? I think um, the, the first one is The Hours, um, uh, directed by Stephen Daldry. Uh, the screenplay was uh, written by David Hare. And uh, David Hare, actually, ironically enough, who uh, with the first play Landmark and Clark's ever did uh, was uh, Skylight and I was in it. That's nearly 20 years ago when Anne Clark set up Landmark Productions. How far she's come now. Look at Gabriel on Broadway. I mean, it's amazing what that woman has done. Anyways, David Hare wrote the screenplay and it blew me away. It was Julianne Moore, uh, Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep. And it's based around the novel Mrs. Dalloway by uh, Virginia Woolf. And uh, it's these women at different stages of their lives. Virg- um, Virginia Woolf writing Mrs. Dalloway. Then we go to the 50s to do the Moore. And all these women have been touched by suicide. Basically, that's what the story is. But what I loved about it is a great writing, but three of our finest actors in their prime being given amazing meaty roles um, and I still go back to that movie again and again and that you know Meryl Streep that that moment where she talks about happiness and realising when she looked at the dawn that was the beginning of happiness and then she went no that was happiness and it teach us all about just being in the moment that's all we got that's what happiness is it's 
beautifully performed and sublimely written. I hope this is the right clip, so, because this is where Meryl Streep, as Clarissa, shares with her daughter Julia, played by Claire Danes, her dissatisfaction with her, pre- with her present life and reflects upon a moment of happiness in her youth. That's it. That's it. That's Yay. the one. Here Brilliant. Brilliant. False comfort. Because if you say to me, when were you happiest? Mom. Tell me the moment you were happiest. I know. I know. It was years ago. Yeah. All you're saying is you were once young. (laughs) I remember one morning getting up at dawn. There was such a sense of possibility. You know? That feeling? And I I remember thinking to myself, so this is the beginning of happiness. This is where it starts. And of course, there'll always be more. (laughs) (laughs) Never occurred to me. It wasn't the beginning. It was happiness. It was the moment. Right then. It's amazing, isn't it? That's you, it. You have other movies. Um, you have John Huston's The Dead. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny, myself and my husband Brian went to see it in the IFI again on the 6th of January, Little Women's Christmas again. I, I watch it every year um, and, and we both love it. I mean, I guess it's the type of film, well, the, obviously the, the, the book, the story, the older you get, the more you appreciate it and our mortality and the way we live our life and, you know, lost lovers. And I, I think John Houston really got the essence of that book. And looking at it again, the IFI this year, you know, on the big screen with amazing Irish performances, Ingrid Craigie and Donal McCann um, just at his best. But the, the, the way it was shot and the, the long shots over the sisters um ornaments and pieces and knowing that one of them is, will be dead by the end of this. I, I, I just think it was, it's a perfect film. We also have on your list on Colleen Kuhn, which we've spoken about yeah. a lot recently, but you've also put in December Bride. Yes, December Bride. Colleen Kuhn, by the way, I, blew me away. I think it will be my favourite film now on another perfect film. But December Bride, by directed by the marvellous gifted Thaddeus O'Sullivan, it's kind of ahead of its time, this one with the two brothers. And and I, I watched it recently again, a shot so sub. Blimely. Um, and uh, Kieran Hines and Don McCann um, being amazing. And then Saskia Reeves leading that, that film. It, it actually was nominated a number of weeks ago and I can't remember who brought that up as their favourite movie as well. OK, oh, yeah. let's go to plays. OK. Clearly Ghosts, which you're rehearsing yes, now. Uh, yeah, and Marco Rose's um, adaptation is extraordinary. But I have to say, Marco Rose, Our Few and Evil Days, um, I think is one of my favourite plays. I remember seeing it in the Abbey and I couldn't move at the end. I couldn't actually move. I don't think I breathed for the whole thing. It's a love story between a couple 
um, whose son has disappeared or has gone, has left their lives. And you think this is going one way and it gets darker and darker and darker. And you can imagine the worst of what happened to this son. And Mark has this extraordinary ability to push moral boundaries and to get to the truth of these characters. He's fearless. He happens to be one of the nicest, kindest men in the business, one of the greatest directors I've worked but his, he's not afraid to go to the dark places. And this, our few and evil days, I think, was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. How to be a dancer in 72,000 yes. easy lessons. Yes, it was on the Dublin Theatre Festival last year, Michael Keegan Dolan's autobiogra- um, autobiographical show about how he became a dancer and his wonderful partner, Rachel. Um, a wonderful piece about being a choreographer, about where his roots were, his family, um, told through music. Um, I remember the night we came back after seeing it, we stuck on Talking Heads in the kitchen and we were dancing to Talking Heads. It was inspiring, but there was a piece at the end where um, his uh, Rachel um, danced Bolero and it was 15 minutes long and it went in two seconds and he's just at the back of the stage, the choreographer, the creator, looking at this piece, holding a wardrobe and it was phenomenal. She was, she is an extraordinary dancer. She She moves air and heaven and earth and and a brought back memories of of watching the Winter Olympics when I was a kid in Galway and being obsessed with Torval and Dean. <laughs> like there's no ice skating rinks in Galway, by the way. But I decided I was going to be a professional ice skater. And bless my parents, they used to drive me up once a year to a nice rink here to um, dance. But I was obsessed with Torval and Dean, and I remember that bolero, that number that they won gold. Uh, okay, well let's move on to books. What's your favourite book? Great Gatsby. Uh, it's funny, I went back to it again over lockdown. I keep that book no more than Joni Mitchell keeps finding me at times when I need to need something. And I think it's probably one of the greatest last lines in any piece of literature that's ever been written. We beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. We never can really escape our past, which is what Ghost is about, actually. But uh yeah, I went back over lockdown and I found myself just relishing the cocktail parties, the Gatsby parties. It fed me something that we had missed out on so much. I think it's beautiful. I think it's one of the most tragic, obsessional, duff stories ever written. But as a writer, you also love Claire Keegan. I adore Claire Keegan, yeah. I, I remember reading Foster, which was the film version of Colin Kuhn and been blown away by it many years ago. And actually thinking that would be a great film. So bless Colin Barrett, he did an amazing job and uh, small things like these. Kind Which of, I think is going to be made into a movie. Yeah, Killian Murphy shooting it at the moment. That's another little, uh, not little, it's an epic gem of courage and bravery of the individual and society fighting against the you've, system. You've lots of TV and I suppose a lot of people remember Faulty Towers from their childhood. But there's two from your childhood I definitely need to talk to you about because <laughs> you're the first person or maybe the second who's brought up Chips. Chips. The like motorbike yeah. policemen. In, yes. Where were they set? It was set in LA, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, set in LA. And I always remember Don Baker and Puncherello. Puncherello was the dark-haired guy <laughs> and Don Baker was the kind of heavy blondie guy. I loved him. I loved John <laughs> Baker. And I remember like... um a, Dad used to always ruin it by going, there they are, tearing down the motorway, whispering to each other and they can talk and hear each other. Ah, oh, you know, the illusion <laughs> of television. And you have Jerry Lewis in The Disorderly. 
The Disorderly Orderly with Jerry Lewis is one of the funniest films. You have to see it, Matt. It's about an orderly in a hospital and it's Jerry Lewis at his absolute best and all the the things that can go wrong in a hospital by putting this man into a hospital. It's it's wonderful. I remember myself and my sister used to do scenes from The Disorderly Orderly. I need to get through TV quickly because I can't leave out The Buried Treasure, which you previewed earlier. Oh, yeah. So Happy Valley is your current favourite, is it? Yeah. Uh, again, Sally Rainwhite and sublime writing. Um, and from day one, uh, it's kind of an extraordinary, it's it's almost Shakespeare, this this heroine moving through with her life, set in Yorkshire, policewoman, brave, not afraid. Sarah Lancashire, who yeah. had started on Coronation Street, I if know. I remember rightly. But she was, I remember when she was, on, she was extraordinary in Coronation Street. I mean, Raquel, wasn't it? Raquel, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and Happy Valley is just uh, wonderful. Um, but the writing, the performances, um, and, and a strong central woman with flawed, deeply flawed and deeply lovable. You also have on your list the brilliant Dobsick, which Michael Keaton yeah. was terrific in. Amazing. But also Catastrophe and The Sopranos, which share something in particular that you like. Yes, they share, I think, two of the best endings of TV shows. Uh, Catastrophe, uh, uh, Sharon Horgan, a genius. But that ending where they swim out and you see the sign, the riptide, are they are they going to survive? Are they not? How, uh, the perfect way to finish this this series. Um, I, she couldn't have done it any other way. Um, so moving. And and of course, The Sopranos, one, the, another one of the best endings of a TV show sitting in that diner. Every time the door opens, Tony's eyes go down again, flip up again. And you go, is he going to be hit? And the, you know, and then our, and the screen goes to black and all the theories that's him dead. I would like to hope maybe he he survived. Um, and Meadow, the daughter, trying to park. So the tension is building, building, building. I thought it was amazing. We are out of time, so I need to play a little bit of music and then you can tell us after we hear a little bit of Kevin Doherty, Oh My Love, why you've selected this. Uh, Lark and Shade surprised me too. Now he's driving for Deliveroo. Enabling the generations. Avoid awkward conversations. And re-establishing isolation in every colour. A frustration feeding religion to the masses and red wine to the middle classes. Oh, my love, I'm not dealing with the situation. Oh, my love, help me find accommodation. If a music things we can be proud of scraps a melody chimeric possibilities i could talk to you a frank sinatra but country is my lingua franca a roadmap for the soul of man from the fireplace to the frying pan Very Treasure by Kevin Doherty. You've 30 seconds, Cathy Belter, to tell us about him, please. I think Kevin Doherty is one of our greatest. He is the Irish. He's better than Bob Dylan. He said to me about this song, he said, it's a COVID fever dream, fever dream, isolation, frustration, the increasing complexity of navigating a world gone mad. Of course, Indian the high of the mutuality appreciated in the referenda. And I think he is a poet. I think he is one of our most gifted. And I want everybody to go home and listen to Kevin Doherty. 
Cathy Felton, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in Henrik Ibsen's Ghosts, Adapted written and directed by, by Marco Rowe, and it's going to be presented by the Abbey Theatre and Landmark Productions from the middle of April. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for having me with us tonight. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here.